If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the beginning of Matthew chapter 20. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get one. I'll have most of the verses up on the screen as well this morning, but not necessarily all of them. Since the beginning of chapter 18 in Matthew, Jesus has been talking about the the value system of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and how it's really opposite from the kingdoms, uh, how the kingdoms of earth value people specifically. And chapter 18 starts off with the disciples asking the question to Jesus of who among us is the greatest? And we know from Luke that they had been arguing on the road, while on the road to Jerusalem, arguing amongst themselves about who was the most important, who was the best one of them. And Jesus responded by essentially teaching that they needed to humble themselves, to assume the the completely vulnerable and dependent humility of a child. And then he goes on to provide some teachings throughout 18 and 19 um, of what kingdom values look like when it's played out within the context of a community of imperfect kingdom citizens living together as a family. And he's, he's explaining using both direct instructions, here's what you should do and shouldn't do, as well as using parables, a very common teaching tool that Jesus used a lot. How a community should be characterized by humility and purity and accountability, respect for each other, mercy and forgiveness towards each other, and love. And these values really should apply to every relationship in every aspect of life, from our friends to our neighbors to coworkers to spouses, parents, children, even to those who we might consider enemies, those, of, those people who would be against us. Last week, Mike brought us through to the end of chapter 19, where Jesus again refers to children as examples of kingdom citizens, having characteristics which we, are, we can learn from. And we saw in chapter 19 where he, he really disappoints this rich young ruler, uh, this man who comes to him, by revealing that wealth and possessions are sometimes an idol, a stumbling block that prevents us from total surrender to Christ and, and worshiping God above all else. Wealth and possessions were commonly seen by the Jews as being blessings from God, as signs of favor from God. So if someone was wealthy, they thought, oh, I must be righteous because God has blessed me with a lot of wealth. And Jesus kind of turned that on its head. And so that really probably came as a shock to Jesus' disciples because they came to the conclusion that, well, if rich people can't be saved, then who can be saved? Jesus replies, Essentially by agreeing, yeah, really no one can be saved by themselves. It's not possible for humans to save themselves. It's not humanly possible, but with God it is possible. Humans cannot enter the kingdom on their own merit, by their own power. But in verse 26 of of chapter 19, Jesus makes the profound statement that with God all things are possible. Now if you had been paying attention to the whole story of the Bible throughout Scripture, what God had done in Israel throughout the generations, this statement really shouldn't come as a surprise. We know that God is capable of of anything. But in this context, the implication is not just that God is powerful, that yes, he can do anything. 
It's that he has chosen to save humanity. He can do anything, but he's chosen to save humans, to personally open the gates to his kingdom to all who are willing to enter, whether or not they deserve it. By becoming human and revealing the kingdom through his life and his death and and resurrection. So with people, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And chapter 18, or 19, I'm sorry, ends with this uh, statement, this teaching about the kingdom in verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. He's explained this, the, the meaning of what he means by this so far by using the example of children and a parable of sheep and a shepherd who goes to find a lost sheep. So now when we come to the parable, and we have another parable in chapter 20, and it's a direct follow-up to this statement in chapter 19. And it's another explanation of the value of humility in the kingdom of God. One of many parables that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of heaven using experiences which would have been very common to people of his day, very relatable. So the people um, listening to him would have you know, found this parable very relatable. It might not be as relatable to us, so it takes a little, few more steps to really understand what he's getting at. In this case, it's an, at the bottom line, it's an illustration of how an attitude of entitlement or superiority amongst believers has no place in the kingdom of God. How we should never dare begrudge the generosity with which, uh, and the mercy with which God treats all humans regardless of how long we've been serving him or how many good things we do for him in life. Let's read together. I'm going to read first from the, the LSB, the Le- uh, Legacy Standard Bible, and we're going to do a little bit of translation comparisons uh, throughout the message today. Well, let's read through the whole thing. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they supposed that they would receive more, but each of them also received one denarius. Now when they received it, they were grumbling at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to, the, to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what, I with, do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. So this, this passage is a really good example of when it can be very helpful to compare different translations when we're reading in English. So this is, again, it's the LSB I just read from. This is a very traditional, literal translation 
and it's pretty transparent to the original language. They try to translate things word for word as much as possible. So that means it also translates units like uh, measurements and currencies and time using the original uh, units like denarius or using the sixth hour and eleventh hour. <coughs> um, does anyone have anything else other than denarius in your translation for the amount of money they agreed to? Anyone? Throw it out there. Everybody has denarius? Usual wage. Usual wage. Okay, yep. How about for those uh, units of time or the measurements of time throughout the day? Does anyone have anything other than like this third hour, sixth hour? Nine, noon, and three. Nine, noon, and three. Yep, and five. So um, I want to read from. I'm going to read the whole passage again from the New Living Translation, which is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum of word-for-word word versus dynamic equivalence and thought-for-thought, thought, which is really trying to get to the, the meaning of the passage for modern readers. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, those people only worked an hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So the most obvious differences in those two translations is that the NLT says the normal daily wage instead of denarius, and then the 9 o'clock, noon, 3, and 5 instead of the third hour, etc. There's another word, though, that is translated in a variety of different ways, which I thought was interesting. And it's the word used to describe the main character of this parable, the man. Um, literally, it's a man, a landowner, or a master of the house. So he's a farmer, he owns a vineyard, we find out, and he's the one responsible for managing all the affairs of his estate. And it's a vineyard that's large enough that it requires hired laborers to maintain and harvest the crop. At this time in first century Palestine, a landowner would typically wake up early in the morning, go into the public square, the marketplace, where day laborers would be gathered. He'd select a few workers for, uh, to go, come tend his fields or harvest his crops, and then pay him uh, their wage at the end of the day. In this case, the owner returns to the marketplace every few hours to get more workers. Because of heavy taxation and debt and scarce resources, most of the lower class in Jesus' day were forced to hire themselves out on a daily basis. There was no job security 
Only very fortunate workers had a permanent means of employment. So this was a, a normal daily thing. The fact that he goes back several times may mean that he simply wanted to keep hiring more laborers or that he was really desperate to get the work done that day. And he offers the first workers that he hires a, a denarius in, in exchange for the day's work. And I forgot I actually did have these verses up here. This is what a denarius looks like. It's a Roman silver coin, and it was, this was what was considered a fair day's wage for a common laborer, like a farmer, or soldiers would also receive a denarius a day. One coin could buy you 15 pounds of wheat in a basket, which is pretty substantial. Certainly enough to live on and get by, especially if you could manage to get hired every day and get paid every day. On the coin, if you can tell, there's some lettering. There's an inscription. There's some letters that say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Essentially, the Romans' claim was that Caesar was the son of God, a claim that would have really rung with irony to this true son of God, Jesus. And that inscription is going to come up again later in the story of Matthew when Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar. So why, why in the story is it a vineyard? Well, again, like with all of his parables, it's a reference to something common and relatable to his listeners. Vineyards or grape farms were among the more, the more common agricultural establishments for that region at that time. Still are a lot of vineyards in that region. But the image of the vineyard is also significant because Israel is symbolized as God's vineyard throughout the Old Testament even in the verse we read uh, during the music time. And Jesus is going to use this analogy again uh, later in Matthew. We see in uh, Psalm chapter 80, Israel is compared to a, a, a vineyard that had been saved and protected, only to later be plundered. It says, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and then you planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its bows. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest devours it, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. And then again we see in Isaiah chapter 3, Yahweh is compared to the owner of a vineyard, who's a vineyard that's been mismanaged by those to whom responsibility has given to manage it. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 14 says, Yahweh enters into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. It is you who have consumed the vineyard. The plunder robbed of the afflicted is in your houses. He's accusing them of, of basically eating their own supply, self-sabotaging, what has been trusted to them. Again in Isaiah, in chapter 5, we find this song of lament for Israel. Isaiah sings this song using the same imagery of a vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And he hoped for it to produce good grapes, 
but it produced only worthless ones. So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he hoped for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. So in this parable, in, well, in this passage in Isaiah, it's a song of lament for Israel and, and a pronouncement of judgment against them by Yahweh. And again, we see Jesus using this common theme, this common image in this parable to describe God's kingdom. Jesus is comparing himself to the landowner, the owner of the vineyard, while the vineyard and its workers are God's people and the workers of the harvest. Remember, his disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest among them. And these disciples would be counted among the first workers of the harvest when it comes to making more disciples. They were the first ones. And as the first, this parable is meant to to humble them and recognize God's mercy as something that's given equally to all and not to be weighed in amounts and compared from one person to the next. I do want to uh, go back to that, the times of day. If you're wondering why the third hour means 9 a.m., the the day was counted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., so there were 12 hours in the day. The rest is night, right? So it kind of makes sense. So the first hour would be 6, and the 12th hour would be 6 p.m. So when we say uh, the sixth hour, it would be noon, the ninth hour would be three, the eleventh hour would be five. And so 11th, going out and hiring a worker at the eleventh hour at 5 uh, p.m., and they're only going to work till 6 p.m., and then giving them a full day's wage would be pretty unheard of. And again, some translations approach those measurements literally, the way they were written, preserve that word-for-word uh, translation. Others convert the, me- the measurements so that we as modern readers know what it actually means. Um, in the parable, the fact that this landowner continues to hire workers throughout the day, even at the end of the day, and again, it applies a couple things. One, the harvest is urgent enough to keep hiring more workers, but also that there's a, this abundance of people who are in need of work that, that no one has hired, and they've been doing nothing all day. So, I think it's interesting to compare this parable with what he said back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. He says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When it comes to the end of the day, the landowner calls for the the workers to be paid. And this is actually in accordance with Jewish law. We see this specified both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Leviticus 19.13 says, Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you 
until morning. In other words, at the end of every day, make sure you pay your workers what they're due. Don't withhold their wages from them. Deuteronomy similarly says, you are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to Yahweh against you and you will be held guilty. So at first, the fact that he's calling to pay his workers at the end of the day, that's normal. That's par for the course. It's a normal, fair transaction. But then Jesus kind of flips it up. First of all, the landowner has the, the people who are hired last get paid first. And I think this is to highlight that summary statement that the last will be first, right? The last in this parable are literally first. And even the people who only work for an hour get paid a whole denarius. So that would have been shocking. And in the parable, the people who had been hired earlier in the day think, oh, well, he got paid a whole denarius for one hour. Well, maybe I'll get a whole denarius for every hour I worked. I'm going to get, you know, 12 or maybe at least two or three or four. They think, this guy's really generous. You know, he gave him one. I, this is my lucky day. And yet, he treats them all equally, which somewhat ironically seems really unfair. Doesn't it kind of, I mean, even to us, it might seem unfair. Even though he treated them all equally, they're not getting paid the same rate. But this is to illustrate God's generosity, the way that the landowner gave some people way more than they deserved. And it's a warning that we as his children should not resent his grace and mercy to those who we might think of as undeserving, unworthy of it. Ultimately, none of us are deserving. We're all unworthy of it. None of us are deserving and ought to treat each other as, as equals with dignity and respect and love. Now, this... This parable has a lot of parallels to another parable in the book of Luke. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read another parable. Luke 15 begins with this statement. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people and even eating with them. The Pharisees and teachers are upset that Jesus is eating and teaching uh, with sinful people. So in response, he then gives them a parable of, of the lost sheep, which we've just had in Matthew as well, then the parable of the lost coin. And then beginning in verse 11, we have this pretty well-known parable of, of a lost son, often called the prodigal son. It's really three lost parables. So I'm going to read starting in verse 11 from Luke. And I'm going to read this in the NLT because it's a story and it kind of flows, flows better. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Excuse me. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. 
I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no, <clears throat> no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was still in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the good son who remains faithful his whole life throughout this story is much like those workers who were hired first early in the day. He resents the generosity of his father towards the rebellious son who repented and, and came home. In both parables, we see God's grace being shown to two different parties while one resents and, and grumbles about the unjust treatment. It's also similar to that image of the one lost sheep who when found is celebrated more than the 99 who remained safe. Jesus uses all these different parables and stories and images and metaphors to describe one thing. They're all describing one thing. That's why they all have so many similarities. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And in nearly every case, something that they all have in common is that it's an unexpected, even shocking perspective for his listeners. It contradicts the status quo of the day. It seems backwards. And Jesus is essentially saying, yes, it is backwards, upside down. Or rather, your perspectives are backwards and upside down, and you need to reorient them to align with the kingdom. Now, one last verse that I really want to compare translations with is verse 15. I thought this was really interesting. So go back to Matthew 20. Um, and look at verse 15. In the LSB, it says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what, I, what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And it's that last little phrase that I think is interesting to see how different translations treat it. The LEB, the Lexham English Bible, says, Is your eye evil because I am generous? Okay, it's a little different. 
The Good News translation, which is similar to the New Living translation, says, Don't I have the right to do as I wish with my own money, or are you jealous because I am generous? Most translations, I looked at probably a dozen different ones, they almost never translate this phrase completely literally word for word. Because it's an idiom that would generally be lost on modern readers like us. The most literal translation I could find, does anyone actually have a King James Version or a New King James Version? You do. Do you mind, do you mind reading this? Oh, you have it on your phone. That's kind of cheating. Yeah. <laughs> that is the version I prefer, though. <laughs> is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Yeah, that's the, that's the literal translation of this, this verse. Is your eye evil because I am good? Or is your eye bad because I am good? They're two opposites. And that's an idiomatic metaphor of, of an evil eye. We actually saw this back in Matthew before. The, an evil eye meant for someone to be stingy, to be selfish or greedy. And then in that context, the contrast of being good would be to be generous, un, gen, generous unselfish. So most translations make some sort of effort to kind of reveal the meaning of that, that phrase. So many, and many will put the literal word in the footnotes. It'll say literally evil and literally good. So in this, in this parable, in this context, having a bad eye is, or an evil eye is the idea of begrudging God, being jealous of his indiscriminate generosity um, and his blessings upon his children. Yeah, we saw this image, uh, this idiom before in Matthew chapter 6 during the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, oh, yep, I thought I put that up there. We saw this in uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus extensively talks uh, in chapter 6 about the importance of generosity. He talks about giving to the poor and, and forgiving others as God has forgiven us. He talks about being humble, not drawing attention to ourselves when we're giving and praying and doing things. And then in verse 19 of Matthew 6, he addresses the topic of wealth and generosity directly. So I want to read this as a reminder of what he said previously. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, the LSB says, your whole body will be full of light. That word literally is, is good. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. For no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So that's in verse 23, we see that idiom again. And reading through that without knowing what it means can be kind of confusing to modern readers. Mike and I, when we were studying that passage, we were like, this seems kind of random thrown in here. He's talking about wealth, then he talks about good eyes and evil eyes. Um, but if you understand that evil eye means greedy or selfish and good eye means generous, then it suddenly makes sense. This whole parable in... Chapter 20, going back to Matthew, it's sandwiched, remember, by this repeated statement that the 
that those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So it's, it's clear that this is the main thrust, the main point of the parable, is to express or to illustrate this truth and what it means. In this story, the workers really had no right to protest their pay since their wage was the normally accepted sum of money, and they had agreed to work for this wage in the first place. And just as this landowner was free to dispense his wealth as he saw fit, so God is free and has every right to dispense his grace however he determines. The first workers he hired represent people who consider themselves to be of of greater importance to God, like the self-righteous man even back uh, in chapter 19, the rich young ruler. The last workers hired represent people who live sacrificially, who work for God, but will be rewarded far more generously than they expect or deserve, which is in reality any of us. So the takeaway of this, this parable really points to the heart of the gospel. That is that God, in his abundant love and mercy, so in, is so incredibly generous to his people, far beyond what we deserve, so far that he's given us the unmerited gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. None of us are deserving of that gift. None of us could do anything to earn that as a payment for anything we do. The wages that we deserve is death. We see that in Romans 6, uh, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died for us and rose again as a beacon of hope and a promise that we too will rise and be with him forever in glory. That's the grace of God, the generosity of, of God. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So because none of us have earned salvation through works of righteousness, we can't even think to begrudge God's mercy and uh, blessings upon another brother and sister. Rather, we should be aiming to reflect God's generosity and selfish, selflessness, not just with money, that's part of it, but with our whole lives, being merciful and gracious, never jealous or selfish or greedy. As Christians, as images of Christ, who is himself the perfect image of God, we should be the shining examples of God's generosity both to the world and to to each other within the church in every aspect of our lives. That's what 